I'd like to welcome you all to the second installment of our Lenten lecture series for 2020, The Sexual Revolution, The Catholic Church and God's Plan for Life and Love. Start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for these 40 days of self-denial, these 40 days of greater conversion and deeper prayer. May we truly make this season an opportunity, Lord, to turn toward you evermore and to bring others with us. May we live your faith that you have given us and the truth you have given us with great joy and so draw many to your plan for life and love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And just by way of reminder, our purpose for these talks is to make sure that all of you know where the mistakes are and how sometimes other mistakes grow from those initial mistakes. In fact, tonight, a perfect example of how making a mistake in the beginning draws greater mistakes, in fact, greater sins later on. We want to make sure this is not just an exercise of condemnation, but this is an exercise of helping to bring others to happiness, to fulfillment, to following God's plan. Tonight, our speaker is Dr. Deborah Savage. She's a member of the faculty of the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity at the University of St. Thomas. She teaches courses in both philosophy and theology and serves as the program director for the Masters in Pastoral Leadership. After graduating from Marquette University with a PhD in philosophy and theology, Dr. Savage has been a recognized scholar of the work of Carol Wojtyla, Pope John Paul II, and has written and spoken extensively on questions of philosophical and theological anthropology and the complementarity of woman and man and the church's social teaching. She is also the co-founder and director of the Siena Symposium for Women, Family, and Culture. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Deborah Savage. She offers our second lecture entitled From Contraception to Abortion on Demand. Thank you. All right, so good evening. It's really a privilege for me to be with you tonight, and I want to mention that I'm more nervous about this talk than I have been about any talk I've given in years. Why is that? Because my daughter is here, and my husband too. My husband will cut me some slack, but maybe not Maddie. <laughs> so I have to be sure that this goes well, and if it doesn't, well, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, it'll be an exercise in forgiveness. And as usual, I have more words to say than I have time for, so I'm going to be talking really fast. Um, I may tell a couple of jokes along the way, but there's no time for laughing. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to pause. My timing might be a little bit off. It's really a privilege to be, have been invited by Father Moriarty and Mr. Wanless uh, and to be a part of this important series of reflections on the consequences of the sexual revolution. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my thoughts with you on what was and remains the singular defining event of our culture in the last 60 years. This revolution, billing itself as an innocuous and innocent movement of love and gentle people with flowers in their hair, there were songs about that, supercharged by drugs and a grave misunderstanding of the meaning of human freedom, has turned out to be sort of a shape-shifting phenomenon that has found its way into the very circulatory system of our culture, spreading through every opening, 
beyond every known and even previously unknown boundary, ignoring, delegitimizing, or sim simply slinking around every impediment. We have learned in frightening detail what happens when an entire society decides, as a matter of public policy, to divorce human sexuality from its natural habitat. The love of a man and a woman intent on making of themselves a total gift to each other, open to what happens next. What seemed like such a simple, and at least to many at the time, miraculous development, just take this little pill, has led to a situation which now almost defies description. Because clearly the deliberate separation of the sexual act from procreation is not only wrong in itself, it is also the source of numerous other harms, as Father said. Beyond abortion, it has led to the hookup culture, the spread of, of sexually transmitted diseases, which has reached epidemic proportions, addictions to pornography, to euthanasia, to surrogacy. Promiscuity is rampant. All because we decided to just take this little pill. Truly, the whole thing is like some giant game of dominoes at a cosmic scale. One by one, the dominoes fall and keep falling. And we fear for ourselves and our children and the generations that we can only hope follow in some natural way after that. Our assignment here tonight is rather a tall one. We have been asked to consider the historical trajectory that brought us to the point where abortion on demand at any stage of the child's nascent life is becoming, nay, has become, a widely accepted norm and the expected outcome of the legal battles still underway. This history spans a good 150 years and reads like an account of a lengthy military battle with many twists and turns, strategic thrusts and withdrawals, moments of steady progress and of retreat, and at times what has appeared to be defeat. We will not be able to trace it in all its details. However, if you want to know all the details, get this fantastic book, Defenders of the Unborn. I made the mistake of reading the whole thing before I got ready for this talk. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to do all that. So we're not going to try. But you should get the book. It is not too far a stretch to compare it to the famous Battle of Lepanto in 1571, when the Catholic states defeated the Ottoman Empire, ensuring, at least for a time, the future of Western civilization. Some say we face similar stakes in our efforts to affect this newer trajectory of events. Clearly, the stakes are high, and the window of opportunity seems to be narrowing. But our topic is more than a history lesson. We have also been asked to grapple with the realities of contraception and abortion in themselves as morally charged acts, and to come to some kind of understanding of how to defend the church's teaching on these issues and its grounding in the natural law in 45 minutes. <laughs> I must admit, I was so excited when I got the email from Mr. Wanless, I didn't read the whole description of what was expected before I accepted the invitation. I wrote back immediately. I've been dying for an invitation from St. Agnes for years, actually. 
throughout time. <laughs> no time for laughing. There's no time for laughing. Eventually, I went back to see what I was supposed to do here tonight, and I about had a heart attack. That's a lot of heavy lifting for a Friday night. But that was the assignment, and so that is what we will try to accomplish. But instead of a purely academic treatment, we will pursue our charge by watching these elements emerge on the ground. I'm pretty sure I'm one of the only people in the room who had a direct line of sight to these events as they unfolded. And it is a perfect opportunity to give an eyewitness account of what really happened, if only for the benefit of the young people in the room. So I'm sort of going to tell a story. And along the way, as we uncover the historical landmarks, it will become clear that the breakdown began when most of Western culture left the natural law behind. We will ask ourselves how we can recover our grasp of reality as a culture. And finally, I would like to tell you what I have come to understand as a result of many years of reflections on the meaning of the sexual act. We begin with a pivotal turning point for Catholics on this issue, the promulgation of Humanae Vitae in July 1968. To be absolutely clear, Pope St. Paul VI landmark encyclical was simply reaffirming what almost all Christians had pretty much always believed. Namely, that the unitive and procreative dimensions of the natural act are both essential to its meaning. But the document came as a shock to many, both Catholics and non-Catholics alike, sparking a firestorm of controversy in a culture that thought it had, finally, taken hold of the forbidden fruit. As author Mary Everstadt says, and I quote, the promise of sex on demand, unencumbered by constraint, represented perhaps the strongest collective temptation humanity has ever encountered. It was like taking candy away from a baby. And the outcry was immediate and rather shrill. In the wake of Pope Paul's insistence on the church's perennial teaching, a decision, incidentally, that has proven to be truly prophetic in every way, people abandoned the church, it seemed, almost overnight. Priests and pastors were afraid even to discuss the issue with those who remained. But the extent of the uproar is inexplicable until one comprehends the series of events that led up to it. Let's consider first the, what was happening immediately prior to the publication of the document. The first oral contraceptives appeared on the scene in 1960, which prompted Pope St. John XXIII to establish, in 1963, a commission of six people, four of them laymen, all European, all men, all non-theologians, to study the question of birth control. After the death of John XXIII, Pope St. Paul VI continued the effort, ultimately expanding the commission to 58 members, including 34 lay members, five of them married women. Of course, rather notably, the commission also included the young Carol Waitiwa, then the Archbishop of Krakow. 
As many as of you know, no doubt know already, by 1966, the commission was ready with its conclusion and submitted three reports to Pope Paul VI. A majority report, which recommended that the church permit the use of contraception, the minority report prepared by four of the priest theologians on the commission, which argued against it, and the rebuttal the majority wrote in response to the minority report. Though intended for the Pope's eyes only, the documents were famously leaked to, to the press in 1967, raising public expectations of a liberalization of the doctrine. It was a moment that had been building for decades. It was the setup of the century, and the reaction broke Pope St. Paul VI's heart. The encyclical never stood a chance. As George Weigel points out, 1968 was absolutely the worst time for Humani Vitae to appear. Not only was everyone eagerly anticipating the removal of the one remaining obstacle to sex without consequences, the environmental movement was just getting underway and beginning to take center stage. Everyone was freaking out about population control. That's what we called it back then. I don't know if you say freak out anymore. Maddie, do you say that? Oh, you do? Okay. We were freaking out. The first Earth Day was in 1970, the same year that Paul Ehrlich published his bestseller, The Population Bomb. Ehrlich was building on Thomas Malthus's famous 18th century essay on population and his claim that humanity itself, and I'm quoting, amounted to a kind of pollution, a scourge that if left unchecked would lead to catastrophe. Ehrlich's own book began with the words, and here I'm quoting, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. Now keep in mind this was published in 1970, and he goes on to say, in the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. The public certainly wanted the freedom to engage in sex without producing babies, but now, not just for the fun of it. Now, there was a truly noble purpose. More babies were a scourge, and they would simply further burden the planet. So I just point out to the young people, I know somebody is saying that our, the world's going to end in 12 years, or is it 11 by now or something? And you're probably thinking, well, if that's the case, why should I do my homework? <laughs> and I just want you to know that if you look it up, Time Magazine has had like 20 covers predicting the end of the world, so I would not count on it if I were you. <laughs> when the first oral contraceptive, contraceptive became medically available in 1960, they weren't legally available till 1965, it entered into an already sexually loaded atmosphere that had begun uh, a new phase a decade, decade before. People have forgotten now about the influence of Jean-Paul Sartre and his paramour, Simone de Beauvoir, who is, by the way, one of the matriarchs of second wave feminism, otherwise known as radical feminism, and the pervasive presence of the mores of the so-called beatnik generation. Anybody remember those people? They wore little black berets, they smoked a lot of cigarettes, they drank a lot of coffee, and they read really bad poetry to each other <laughs> on Saturday nights. Free love was, I mean, I've heard about that. I wasn't. 
I've seen it in Woody Allen movies. Free love was already on the radar screen of most 20 and 30-somethings as the decade began, but it was still accompanied by the unfortunate and unintended, quote unquote, consequences that naturally occur from having sex with one another. Women have an inconvenient tendency to get pregnant. But the birth control pill was going to take care of that with ease. For the first time in history, we were medically equipped to cure the fertility problem. And in 1965, the Supreme Court, in a decision known as Griswold versus Connecticut, made contraceptives finally legally available to married couples. With the publication of Betty Friedan's 1963 bestseller, The Feminine Mystique, anybody ever hear about that? Whew. Women awoke, to use a current word and declared they were ready to claim their rights to something. What that something wasn't exactly clear until the birth control pill came along. Though unmarried couples would not be able to purchase oral contraceptives legally until 1972, they were easily obtained from campus clinics. And so the die was cast. We were finally poised to remove the one remaining obstacle to unfettered access to sex without a penalty, or so we thought. But let's set that record straight. In July of 1968, I was just getting ready to enter my junior year in high school. I know you can do the math. <laughs> I knew nothing of the controversy that swirled around the document at the time. Nothing of the battle that had been fought in the decades leading up to it. Though it seems unbelievable in light of our contemporary context, I was blissfully unaware that anything like artificial contraception even existed, let alone that the birth control pill had only recently been invented, or that its use had even more recently been legalized. I was more or less a normal 16-year-old, at least what passed for it then, a diligent student and an athlete looking forward to college. But by the time I got to college in 1970, everything had changed. It was there that I actually witnessed firsthand what the Holy Father's teaching was intended to avert. And although the cultural transformation that took place during that time is widely considered to have been liberating, I now recognize those events as the beginning of a new kind of slavery. I was born in San Francisco, and I went to a college barely an hour's drive from the famous Haight-Ashbury district. It's amazing to me that not everybody has heard of this. Haight-Ashbury? Some people are nodding, other people go, what? <laughs> it was ground zero of the then burgeoning free love movement, okay? It's in San Francisco, and it was within an easy drive from where I was. I guess you could say that I had a front row seat at the beginning of what we now refer to as the sexual revolution. I watched firsthand as the young women around me dropped like flies in the face of its onslaught. We had entered into college life full of hope. For many, that hope lost its sheen in the meaningless sexual encounters that lay in wait for us. The first indication that one of my doormates had done it was most often morning after tears, followed soon by a kind of despair. 
as it dawned on them that the young man to whom they had given themselves had no intention of calling back. The second was the heavy sense of desperation that filled the halls of the dorm as we all waited with bated breath for someone's menstrual cycle to begin. When it did, there was usually some kind of party. When it did not, the girl just disappeared. Abortion on demand, the one thing remaining that would ensure complete sexual freedom was still out of reach. But it just no longer made sense to say no to the young men so intent on their desires. At least it didn't make sense to them. The advent of the pill had opened the door to sex without consequences, apparently even if you weren't taking it. Or such was the assumption. Most of us didn't really know yet that one simply needed to visit the campus clinic and procure a prescription for those magical birth control pills. It had all happened so fast. And anyway, to do so was an open admission that one had decided to do it with as yet unknown partners on a regular basis. And at least at first, that was a hard step to take. It gradually became clear that almost no one was likely to acquire a steady boyfriend. The men were looking for conquests. The women took their chances on every date, and every date brought with it the same tussle, more recently publicized as the Me Too phenomenon. Yes, no, yes, no. Until finally, one by one, the women, exhausted, surrendered. Though I was Catholic, I knew nothing about Humanivite or its teaching. It simply was not on my radar screen. I was at a public university, and it never really came up. I have no recollection of the priests at the Newman Center ever mentioning it, nor do I remember the priest at my home parish preaching about it. I certainly knew what sex was, but had little experience of it. What I did know for sure was that it was darn hard to get a date those days unless somehow you had somehow hinted that you might be re ready or willing to go all the way. One young man said to me when I protested that I did not do that sort of thing, he said, well, I would like to hear your reason, but it had better be a good one. I would like to find that young man. <laughs> I bet he has daughters now. I remember feeling panicky as I realized I actually wasn't completely sure why. I did not know how to explain my reasons for saying no to his demand for sex. It was just an instinct, really, for which I had no coherent explanation. But I was fairly certain that to tell him that my mom had told me not to was not going to fly. <laughs> After all, he had taken me out for a nice dinner. It is a story that repeated itself in one way or another throughout my first years of college. The men might ask you out, but there was a price. And if you were not willing to pay it, you were at risk of being labeled a tease or frigid or hung up or desperately lonely. It is actually hard to say right now who was the perpetrator and who the victim in all this. We were all very young, and like all young people without fully developed frontal lobes, everybody knows about that, right? I know you think you know everything, but you don't. 
Um, where was I? I got distracted there for a minute, so I was telling that to Maddie, actually. <laughs> okay, for young people without fully developed frontal lobes, our judgment was not surpri surprisingly impaired. The natural desire for, in for intimacy is an ineluctable feature of human existence. Young men and women have always tended to mistake sexual attraction for love, which is generally why they need adult supervision. And so at the end of the day, we were all complicit. And once we all agreed to it, there was nowhere to go except exactly where we find ourselves now, in a state of total confusion about human relationships. If only we had given it a moment's thought, we might have realized that this could have been predicted. Oh, but wait, it was predicted. It was predicted by Pope St. Paul VI in 1968. The sexual revolution defined my generation. Its aftermath has continued to define the experience of young people ever since on college campuses, in bars, and at parties, in the normal search for love. It has encroached on the workplace, insinuated itself into every form of media, shackled relationships, and destroyed marriages. It has led directly to the situation we face now. For when the sexual act is divorced from its procreative dimension, or from the sacramental love that ought to accompany it, there is no reason to rule out any kind of sexual encounter. Like the disease, diseases that have spread as a result, it is itself a virus, a sort of permanent culturally transmitted STD. One that now lurks in almost every interaction between men and women, young and old alike. Though the irony is lost on most of today's thought leaders, it is patently obvious to any honest observer that the excesses of the hookup culture revealed so profoundly by the Me Too movement are merely the logical consequences of the tacit decision midway through the 20th century that it was time finally to agree to separate sex from a loving, committed relationship. What almost no one seemed to grasp was that when we ignore the laws that govern our bodies, our moral lives, our relationships, the very world we live in, we do so at great peril to ourselves and those we encounter. In other words, ignore the natural law at your own risk. The evidence is all around us. I don't have time to go through it, but every single prediction by Paul VI has come true in spades, often demonstrated by people who do not even have a dog in the fight. To understand how we came to this will require us to retrace our steps. The story actually begins in the late 19th century, and not with contraception, but with a debate about abortion. And the foot soldiers in the early days of this battle were not theologians or politicians or even women. The key players were medical doctors. And the whole thing began with what is now a familiar question, when does life begin? At the time, it was a question that would be decided not in the legal system or political arena, not even by theologians, but by the medical profession. Prior to the early 19th century, judges had, almost, had mostly interpreted the common law to allow for abortion prior to the quickening of the child in the mother's womb. 
This was based on the commonly held assumption on the part of theologians during the medieval and early modern periods, including St. Thomas Aquinas, that aborting the fetus during the first few weeks of pregnancy was a lesser sin than killing a fully developed human. But in the 17th century, Catholic theologians and physicians challenged this assumption and argued that human life began at conception, making abortion at any stage of pregnancy an act of murder. This conviction gained traction when in the late 19th century, science began to catch up with discoveries in embryology. The evidence was becoming clear. Conception was pinpointed as the start of life. And this scientific, scientific fact was spread to the wider public by a number of Protestant doctors who went around the country armed with cases of glass slides showing the fetus at various stages of development. Quickening was, in fact, a biologically meaningless stage. Human development, they demonstrated, happened along a continuum. The start of a human life was at the moment of conception. And so, in 1869, Pope Pius XI issued the papal bull, Apostolicae Sedis, an act of the Holy See, declaring that abortion performed at any stage was an excommunicable offense. Thus, somewhat unintentionally, Catholics and Protestants became partners in arriving at the conviction that abortion always and everywhere killed a child. By the end of the 19th century, legislatures in er nearly every state had enacted laws that allowed abortion only in cases in which the procedure was required to save a woman's life. Indeed, laws were passed that made both abortion and contraception illegal, mostly as part of wider anti-obscenity measures. But there were national laws and there were state laws that restricted the sale of contraceptive devices. The general consensus in the culture was that such laws were entirely legitimate. And for a time, positive and natural law spoke with one voice. But the consen consensus began to break down in the wake of two particular events. First, a new foot soldier by the name of Margaret Sanger appeared on the scene in the early 20th century. Anybody not heard of her? Sanger's organization, the American Birth Control League, which we now know as Planned Parenthood, worked to instigate and organize birth control campaigns throughout the 1920s and 1930s. Sanger herself was the force behind the development of oral contraceptives. And second was a series of gatherings known as the Lambeth Conference. These events are connected because it is the outcome of the Lambeth Conference of 1930 that Sanger's campaigns were organized to disrupt. Since 1878, the Anglican Communion had made a practice of holding a conference of all the bishops every 10 years. It became known as the Lambeth Conference, named after the English palace at which they met. While contraception had been discussed at the 1908 conference, it was explicitly condemned at the 1920 conference. But by 1930, just 10 years later, Sanger's campaign had done its work. The Anglican Communion reversed itself, declaring that Christian couples had a right to use artificial birth control. 
They were followed in short order by other Protestant churches where Sanger's ideas had gained widespread acceptance, at least among the middle class. The reversal spread even to several Jewish organizations. Though evangelicals generally remained firm in their opposition to birth control, liberal Protestants and Jews erased contraception as a progressive humanitarian measure necessary for the welfare of women who otherwise could find themselves facing an unwanted pregnancy with no choice but to undergo the risk of an illegal abortion. By 1946, Sanger's organization, now called Planned Parenthood, had 3,200 ministers as members. No Catholics, I'm happy to report. These developments are particularly shocking when we consider what Sanger actually had in mind. To be sure, her actions were inspired in part by her work with poverty-stricken women with too many mouths to feed and their despair at a seemingly intractable problem, but also in part by her conviction that it was a mistake to allow the unintelligent, these are kind of quotes, the unintelligent, the promiscuous, the deformed, the mentally disabled, and this is particularly hard to say, black women, to continue to give birth to children. She saw birth control and even sterilization as essential in the effort to limit the growth of such communities and argued it would also prevent the need for any woman to have to resort to abortion. But it was a movement that didn't stop with the voluntary use of contraception. In the early 20th century, well before the idea occurred to Adolf Hitler, more than half of America's 48 states passed laws allowing the forcible sterilization of criminals or the feeble-minded, a practice upheld by the Supreme Court in Buck versus Bell in 1927. The ruling was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes himself whose closing argument included the rather famous declaration that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. The sole dissenter in the court's opinion, again, I am happy to say, was Justice Pierce Butler, a devout Catholic. 60,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized under these programs. Ordinary Catholics were horrified. The Jesuit magazine America, this was a while ago, <laughs> declared all of this to be a direct attack on the law of God, the law of nature, and human life itself. For the Catholics of the time, I know it's kind of amazing, for the Catholics of the time, all of these things came under one heading, an egregious disrespect for the divine gift of human life. Though to be clear, this was not an argument about abortion per se. Most of them, including Sanger, were against it at the time. The focus was contraception, but Catholics saw the connection immediately. They viewed contraception as a dangerous assault on human life that would soon put the societal consensus against abortion in jeopardy. The two issues had been linked in Catholic teaching and public discussion for decades and they were committed to upholding both. And when Pius XI issued Casti Canubi on Christian marriage in that same year, in December of 1930, 
who was, by the way, writing himself writing in solidarity with Leo XIII's 1880 encyclical on Christian marriage. It was not only a direct response to the Protestant reversal on the question of birth control, it also contained an explicit condemnation of the eugenic practices already underway. The dispute raged throughout the 1930s and 1940s when reports of genocide and other atrocities surfaced toward the end of World War II. The consequences of removing the law's protection of an entire class of humans simply because they had never been born were crystal clear to Catholics. It was a step toward the eugenic and genocidal policies of the Nazis. Those on the other side were offended by such claims and argued out of a concern for the life of the mother, which in their minds was primary. But without disputing the importance of mothers, Catholics fought each attempt to liberalize abortion laws as though the future of civilization depended upon it. Because it did, actually. The legal and political battles familiar to all of us that have dominated the news cycle for decades did not really begin until the 1950s. And by the 1960s, the front lines had moved. Catholics continued to defend these truths on the basis of the natural law, but their shots missed the mark. Positive law had blotted, blotted out any commitment to it. Man had taken control, and he achieved it in three or four easy steps. First, the 1965 Supreme Court decision known as Griswold versus Connecticut established a constitutional right to marital privacy, freeing married couples to use contraceptives. That was followed by another ruling in 72 declaring the same right must be extended to unmarried couples. And the right to privacy argument in Griswold is what set the stage that would of what would later become the main argument in the landmark case of Roe versus Wade in 1973. But the real clincher is actually the 1992 decision known as Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a case that called for the court to review and reassess the findings in Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade is really, really, really bad law, really bad judicial thought. It's full of holes. And Casey versus Planned Parenthood was our chance to revisit that. But the court determined, in addition to a few other things, that the right to an abortion would stand because women had come to depend on it. The right to an abortion provided a guarantee that women would have access to professional careers and economic success. And the rest, as they say, is history. When I first heard about that, that Casey versus Planned Parenthood um, argued that I needed protection or this option so that I could have access to a career, I just, I was absolutely, I was so offended, for starters, but I was flabbergasted. It's what the law says in the end. The debate has become a purely, a purely an argument about legal rights now. It is now a contest between the right of the mother to absolute autonomy and control over her body versus the life of the child, who is now referred to as pregnancy tissue on Planned Parenthood's website. Pregnancy tissue. You know who pointed that out to me? My daughter. And she insisted I put that in here. Yeah. 
It's shocking. And autonomy has become the standard by which all life decisions are made. Autonomy, all life decisions. The baby, the old person, the disabled, the sick, and the dying, when their autonomy is compromised, they are no longer truly human. From the beginning, the front line of this dispute has been the natural law. Our opponents have abandoned the self-evident truth that things have natures, that everything has a law built into that nature, and that morality is both governed by that nature and knowable to human reason. This is the starting place of the natural law. It presupposes the existence of an author, a creator god, from whom all life comes and who, in a sense, has inscribed manufacturer's instructions in our nature, making it possible for us to discover through reason and conscience how we ought to act in order to achieve our destiny. Those who contracept usurp God's place by making themselves the arbiters of when life will be permitted to begin. Those who abort their children decide when it will end. In fact, this was exactly what was at stake in the Birth Control Commission's majority report. These are Catholics talking. Here is their main argument for the use of contraception. Quote, for it is natural to man to use his skill in order to put under human control what is given by physical nature. These are Catholics who have also lost touch with the fundamentals. Physical nature gives nothing. It is it is given. It cannot give anything that was not first given by God. The majority statement echoes the claims of Francis Bacon. Anybody heard of him? Father of modern science, they say. The first to say knowledge is power. I wonder if Malcolm X knew that. I don't think so. The first guy to say knowledge is power is a white aristocrat who in the late 17th century claimed that the purpose of human knowledge was to gain absolute control over nature. And we have been operating under that premise every, ever since. The idea that I can change my sex or my gender, whatever you want to call it, is a feature of the Baconian project. We want control over nature. We want to be free of the nature that we're given. Joe Biden said recently in the lead up to the Iowa caucus, one of his more humorous gaffes, we choose truth over facts, he said, yes. He said it with all the vigor he could. What he means is that, what he actually means is that we decide what truth is and then we determine, we determine what facts are relevant. This is otherwise known as an ideology. But Catholic teaching is not an ideology. It is actually grounded in facts, in reality, in things as they are. The church's entire edifice of teaching is grounded in what they call philosophical realism. And if you, you really ought to pursue what that actually means. Because you can take the church's truth claims to the bank because they're grounded in what is actually so. The church is absolutely pro-science because she is pro-created order. We recognize the fact that things have essences, that there is such a thing as human nature, 
and that it is embodied in every single person born or unborn. We recognize that human beings are characterized by potencies only waiting to be actualized. And that to be a human is to be on the way to, the, to fulfillment at every stage and every age. Here is the argument. I was told I had to offer some kind of apologetic. Here it is. If it would be wrong to kill me now, and hopefully we can all agree that it is. <laughs> what do you think, Batty? Okay. Then it is wrong to kill me at any stage of life. I was once a fetus, and so were you. For the only substantive difference between me and the embryo I started as is that I am bigger. I mean, there's a few other differences, but yeah. In the immortal words of Dr. Seuss, a person is a person no matter how small. Now I'm going to stop here and tell you a little story. Several years ago there was a panel organized at St. Thomas and the whole question was when does life begin? Okay. And uh, Dr. Maloney's husband Steve Haney got up and gave a very eloquent argument about the meaning of personhood. Paul Voidick got up and made a theological argument about the meaning of personhood. And the third person that was there was an evolutionary biologist. And he stood up and he said, well, you know, I thought this was some sort of trick question. Because everybody knows that life begins at conception. The audience gasped. We were like, really? I, we thought that was in dispute. He goes, no. And he, it was so funny. He had a, a slide where he showed, you know, the little sperm. He said, let me illustrate for you. <laughs> There's a little sperm, and there's an egg, and look what happens. It's a zygote. It's a totally new person. It's a to totally new thing. It was amazing. It was not planned. But he truly, he said, he wasn't even Catholic, I don't think. He said, I couldn't understand what you guys were asking. Of course it begins at conception. Write that down. Then Teresa Collette got up and said, oh, I guess it depends on what deserves constitutional protection. Life begins at conception, and science knows it, and they've known it since the late 19th, early 19th century, or whatever I said, since the 19th century, a long time ago. We've known it from the start. So don't bother arguing on the basis that the baby in the womb is a person loved by God. Don't get involved in a debate about when life actually begins. You can argue for the Catholic position on the basis of science and legal rights. Because by our own law, no one has a right to murder another person because they are unable to fend for themselves or because their existence is burdensome or inconvenient, period. The issue is constitutional protection. They may not buy it. They probably won't. But you keep pressing on that because those are the facts. Men and women have achieved many things in the past 50 years, but the freedom to engage in meaningless sex cannot be included on our list of achievements. Only animals have sex without thinking about it. To engage in it with a, without a moment's thought is to reduce human beings to animals, to objects of use. 
An unwanted pregnancy is not a mistake of nature. It is not a mistake at all. The mistake is choosing to have sex when that which naturally follows from the act, its natural consequence, is not wanted. It seems to me that if we are arguing about abortion, about a woman's right to choose, we are already in losing territory. Because the actual moment of decision, the moment when there is still a legitimate and free decision to be made, is not after the fact. The fateful moment, the moment when men and women get to make a choice, is in the minutes leading up to the decision to have sex at all. Here is what I have come to think is true. And by the way, Mr. Wanless said I could have a little more time. I hope that's OK with you. I'm just going to keep going. If you have to go, it's all right. And just keep talking. So but this is kind of what I, this is the result of years of reflecting on these questions because of my experience and also my training. And here is what I have come to think is true. Sex outside of marriage is now commonplace, assumed, and expected. This unfortunate development has obscured one simple and undeniable fact, which has now disappeared from view. And that is that, at least until relatively recently, it was, in fact, woman's simple no to the sexual advances of men, here speaking outside of, about outside of marriage, that provided the guardrails necessary to stave off what has become a cultural free-for-all. For centuries, woman's no has been the antidote, forgive me men, to the sometimes chaotic sexual impulses of men, especially young ones. Again, only animals have sex without thinking about it. And I would argue that it is woman who knows, if only in a pre-verbal way, the significance of that often instinctive refusal, the one I had. I said no, but I couldn't articulate why. Now I can. So can Maddie. Right? OK, write this down if you can. <laughs> they know it for what it is, an act of self-preservation. In fact, it is this very refusal that invites man into a deeper reflection on who he is. It is because women say no that men must confront their own disordered desires. Without this no, men are held captive by their instincts. Their development is stunted. They are prevented from becoming fully themselves. They are stuck in an endless childhood driven by the wish for instant gratification, unable or unwilling to grow up. If you want another resource, I just discovered Fulton Sheen says basically the same thing. Darn it, he beat me to it. Not surprising, really. But when a man hears no, this is to be saved for marriage, he has no choice but to turn inward and ask himself what it is he really wants. He is called then to make something of himself in order to earn the respect and commitment of his beloved. He must prepare himself for the tasks ahead, to provide for and protect his family, to contribute to the common good of his community and the nation. But these days, let's all admit it, instead of turning toward a life of commitment and virtue, we see young men who still live in their parents' basements playing video games or hanging out with their friends or drinking in bars hoping to score. 
They have lost their way, though, because women lost theirs. Though ridiculed by many as mere sexual repression, woman's instinct to refuse the sexual advances of man is, in fact, a reflection of a profound wisdom held in the deep recesses of her very being. It issues from the aquifer coursing through every woman's body. It is a knowledge that manif manifests in every sexual encounter, wanted and unwanted. Men, especially men seeking the heroic virtue characteristic of authentic masculinity, can and do understand this intellectually. Contrary to popular assumptions, men really can, men really can learn to govern their appetites in the name of what is holy, and many do. Indeed, the evidence of the masculine genius is all around us. It has built and sustained civilizations, created systems of law, government, education, protected all of us in times of war and natural disasters. Men serve their families and their communities in countless ways. And for this, they should have not our scorn, but our gratitude. But while woman's vocation is, in a sense, built into her very body, a man must be initiated into his. He must be summoned to that effort. He must be invited to it. And a man simply cannot know the full meaning of the sexual act as a woman does, for it actualizes a potency that only she possesses. It was and still is, whether they admit it or not, women who understand what is at stake in their simple yes or no. Women who understand, often in a completely pre-verbal way, something about sex that is organically unknowable to men, that it is her very selfhood, along with its life-giving potencies that are on the table. For the truth is that all of humanity has no choice other than to pass through the womb to its human destination. Every woman contains within herself, at least potentially, all future humanity. It is this inchoate, hidden understanding that is now laughed at by those who unaccountably have won the right to tell everyone what to think. What has gone unacknowledged is the fact that the stories behind the Me Too movement predate the Weinstein affair literally by millennia. Indeed, it is a familiar tale to almost every woman who has ever lived. Its provenance is the story of our first parents and their loss of innocence in the Garden of Eden. Man and woman both sinned in that moment and both share equally in the burden it opposed. In the aftermath, the gifts that had been theirs by natural right instead of giving life became a source of tension, confusion, and fear. But though man and woman share the same guilt, they do not share the same consequences. And the consequences are playing out before our eyes. The account of the fall, I argue, serves as a potent theory of history, its diagnostic power mostly overlooked. For the Me Too phenomenon is really the story of original sin playing out as it has throughout the ages. What distinguishes this moment is that this time, it is on full display on the world's stage. Men tend to treat everything, including women, like objects. Women, uncertain of their worth, aim to please. 
How I wish someone would have pulled me aside in 1970 and helped me to understand the danger my generation and I were in. Where were the priests, the ministers, the adults then? They were either silent, afraid to preach or speak about it, or applauding from the sidelines, regretful that such a revolution had come too late for them. I'm telling the young women this, especially. Had I known then what I know now about my body, about my dignity as a woman, about the meaning of truly fruitful love, how different my life and the lives of countless young women who came of age in that era would have been. And what of the hundreds and thousands of, of thousands of young women who have struggled since, who continue to struggle now to overcome their natural instinct toward modesty and their predisposition to decline male advances outside of a committed, loving relationship. Though many women are still secretly hoping for a steady boyfriend, many more are well on their way to finally replacing that instinct with their own now hyperactive libido. Women are poised to fall into the same trap foisted on humanity by the so-called enlightenment that the only thing that really matters is absolute individual autonomy. God forbid that women finally accept that isolation is the goal, that commitment is for fools, that children are merely a burden or a commodity. Even though in her heart of hearts it is relationship she seeks, woman is now finally standing on the edge of a precipice. In the balance is the view that real freedom means the right to liberate oneself from one's nature. That real freedom means the freedom to refuse something already given, the gift of who one is. But here's the problem. What happens if women, the bearers of life, finally accept that the ideal way to live is to model their lives on the destructive patterns of the hookup culture? Today's women may not understand the source of their discomfort, but it's not easy to diagnose. What simply must be understood by men and women both is that for a woman, the sexual act is an invitation to the man, or at least an agreement, to enter inside her to enter into her very being. Sexual intercourse is an actual penetration of woman's inner self. When not accompanied by love and commitment, it is an act of pure, unadulterated theft. A theft that is permanent, of something that cannot be retrieved. She will not recover when she is used for the pure pleasure of it, no matter how hard she tries to feel whole again, for she holds within herself the memory of having been entered and of what was lost. To both the women and the men here tonight, I offer this undeniable truth. It is woman who holds the union of the procreative and unitive dimensions together in her very body. In some silent, organic way, she grasps the truth of John Paul II's claim in Love and Responsibility that the sexual act is man's participation in the very transmission of existence. And because this transmission travels along the axis that links, links heaven and earth, it has the force of an electrical current, 
Deny its nature and it is like trying to grab a power line. Come too close without the right formation or without the right intention and there will be a short. Human sexuality is at the core of man's essence, which is why the serpent never tires of meddling in it. But it is woman who is or must be grounded. When she is, she is the equivalent of a heat sink. And she understands that in the sexual act, she will discover her capacity for self-gift. And she knows that in making that gift to a man who truly loves, loves her, she reveals to him the gift that he is. Woman is the guardian, the keeper of the gift of self, because it is only in her body that the fruits of that gift, new life, take root, grow, and are born. The contraceptive mindset that governs our culture is an affront to the dignity of woman because it is a declaration that who she is in her very being is not wanted. Woman's fertility is not a disease. It is not a convenience. It is at the heart of the gift she is to the world. Every man, I want to make sure I get this in because the men are like, wait a second. I mean, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> so let me say this. Every man in this room is a gift too. Tasked with the mission of guarding and protecting the sanctity of human life especially women and children. Never has there been a time in our history when the heroism of men has been more desperately needed. Chivalry lives in your hearts, I know, and I'm speaking to the young men in particular. Follow that impulse. Please protect your girlfriends, your sisters, your wives, your daughters, from the scourge of meaningless sex. Do not let them be turned into objects for the pleasure of men. Don't let them do it either. Lift them up. They are the carriers of life. Unless we acknowledge what is truly at stake here, the tragedy we have witnessed will play out for yet another generation. Unless and until woman's full destiny not apart from her natural capacity to nurture life, but inclusive of it, is seen for what it is. Our world will always be populated with one generation after another of permanently adolescent males and wounded women. This may be the final act in the never-ending drama of the meaning of human sexuality. The irony is that though we live in a culture apparently obsessed with sex, even addicted to it, the truth is, not that we value it too much, we do not value it enough. We know the truth, it is built into our very bodies. Thank you for your patience and kind attention. You're stunned. She answered all your questions. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hi, Luke. Yeah. Nice to meet you, too. Do you think to change the culture, it's about reinforcing the idea of joyfulness instead of just happiness? Because oh, happiness, yes. 
yeah. is about, I believe, in my theory is that it's a, uh, you're seeking external things to make you feel content inside. Yeah. Is just yeah. Being content with being. Yeah. So do you think, and I think along those lines, like happiness is transactional, what's in it for me? Good for you, yeah. Yeah. about we, it's about a gift, like you were mentioning, giving and receiving. So how do you think, like, how can we approach that with people? Because yeah. so many people are like, it's about me, whatever, you know. Okay. Okay, got it. So I would answer this way. Um, every single person that you encounter wants to be happy. I mean, we can get to the joy part in a minute, but it's the only thing that we desire of necessity. We have no choice about desiring to be happy. This is a part of our tradition. Everyone wants it, and they do things because they think it'll make them happy. And so what people are mistaking is only apparent goods for the authentic good. It's only the authentic good that will give you joy. And this is the law written into our bodies. That's one thing. The second thing is, yes, that the Catholic understanding of sexuality is incredibly beautiful. Listen to John Paul II, that the participation in the, sex, in the marital act, the sexual act, is participation in, in the transmission of existence. This is God's thing. It's a very big deal, which is why we get so wrapped around this, because we have not fully appreciated that this is at the heart of who we are, because we are co-creators with God. And only in that moment, a moment of inexpressible intimacy, is, it, is that the fullest expression of that. We are playing with fire in this culture. It does not surprise me at all that we are witnessing the downfall of our civilization. It, it doesn't. It doesn't mean we can't recover. No, we have to. But the only way we will, because what about our children and theirs, right? So the only way we will is if we really understand that that's, that's the truth. And, and, you know, I would say that women's voices have been smothered by the radical feminists who, th who have made abortion their god. There's a, there's a um, study recently engaged in by some folks at the Wharton School of Business. The name of the report is called The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness. Women are less happy now than they were 50 years ago. Men, strangely, are happier. Who would have thought, right? So, so no, it's, it's really odd. But when I read the title, I, I started laughing. Paradox? There's nothing paradoxical about that. Yeah, we, the, the feminist movement has not achieved what it set out to achieve, which really ought to be that a woman should have the respect for her person. And the Me Too movement reveals that we are way far away from that. So I'd say that, you know, uh, the theology of the body reveals sort of the positive side of the don't have sex, you know, outside of marriage. It really reveals the beauty of what we're trying to do. The, the body is, is a sacrament. The body is who I, how I speak. My body speaks. Look at it. <laughs> My essence comes, I don't know who I am, but you can see it. If you asked me who are you, I wouldn't know how to answer. But it comes through, right? Through the body. There's a language that it speaks. And we are not listening to one another. Yeah. JP2 says complementarity is what gives us our mission. 
the complementarity of men and women, gives us our mission, which is to create not only human families, but human history itself. That's our mission. I don't know. I could say a lot more, but. I'm just asking, like, how do you relate that to people? Because a lot of, um, like, some of my roommates is like, I'm against abortion, but it's not for me to say. Oh. It's about, I feel like it's changing the mindset of, like, we're in this together, we're in a culture together. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is because people have given up on the idea of reason, right? It's called the motivism, that everything is just a personal preference. You think abortion is wrong, I think it's okay, no big deal. And it's, um, it's actually the, the disease of our era. It's resulted in relativism, subjectivism, all that stuff. Because we no longer agree on first premises. There's no place to start. And the first, the first thing you have to start with is, what are the facts? In spite of what Joe Biden said. You have to start, what are, fa what are the facts? You can, you, you know, what you all need, prob what everybody needs, I'd say, is a degree in philosophy. Because this is, um, this is just self-evident. You know, we don't have to prove the existence of these things, actually. They're self-evident. And we fall into the trap of trying to prove it to people that will never believe it anyway. Let's uh, thank Dr. Savage one more time. Thank you. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And bless you, mighty God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Have a good night. God bless you all. <laughs>